If you haven't been with us this summer, lots of things have been going on around here, um, besides me growing hair. My boys didn't think that I could grow hair, so I had to show them that I could. What old man can't grow hair? Come on. Goes with the territory. Anyway, if you haven't been here all summer long, we've been taking a look at the book of Nehemiah. And one of the things that we have discovered in this study is that the image of building the walls around Jerusalem is, is an image of God building up his church. And for us, that would be Vineyard Rolla. And so far, we were, today we're looking at chapter 7, and if you have your um, Bible or you have your iPhone or whatever it is that you have, you can open up there to, to chapter 7. We're actually going to start with chapter 6, verse 16 first, if you want to get there. But what we have said so far is that um, in, the, in all of this that's going on, God is building up his church through passion-filled people. When Nehemiah showed up in front of the king and his countenance was distressed, it was because he was emotionally engaged with what he perceived God wanting to be and do in his own community. He was, he was emotionally charged. And the question, of course, for all of us is, when was the last time you've ever been emotionally charged about what goes on at Vineyard Rolla? God is waiting for us to sort of energize ourselves through his passion, not our own passion, but his passion. Secondly, when passion-filled people emerge, then God directs them. So here is this man who was, was concerned about his people. God says, Nehemiah, I want you to go back across from Babylon, go across the desert to Jerusalem. I want you to do something for me. I want you, and he gave him a plan, which is the third thing, that godly leadership calls us all into action. Whenever God moves on your heart, God will give a direction. He will call you into leadership, or he will call you into action based upon leadership. And if you look at, uh, at the story, Nehemiah shows up, and everybody who had been sitting there doing nothing for years, just playing church, all got engaged. None of them thought that when he showed up, they, by the time the story was going to end, they were going to spend 24-7 either with their servant sleeping and they were guarding the servant or the servant was guarding them while they slept and then one would guard the other while they worked on the fence. They didn't even go home for weeks to get that, that wall built. They didn't think about that at the beginning, but by the time it ended, action happened. Fourthly, each was responsible for their area of service. So everyone in the church was given something to do. A call was made. A response was given. Everybody knew their part, and they entered into it. Then, with every good story, there's always got to be a hero and an and a anti-hero, so to speak, Right? Whenever God's people start moving together in a common direction, under a common vision, to do something mystical and magical in the name of Jesus Christ, guess what? Resistance always arises. You always got somebody putting their foot on the brake. Somebody blowing the wrong tune to the wrong horn. 
and that happened in this story as well. But God-centered leadership is honored by God and is vital to establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The leadership and the calling of God always trumps out those naysayers who say, oh, this can't be done, this is the wrong way to go, we shouldn't worry about it, whatever. So that's up through chapter 6. And last week they celebrated the fact that they built the wall in 52 days. Not one of them thought it was, I mean, they had been dormant for years, decades. And in 52 days, Nehemiah shows up and something amazing happens. Now we come to chapter 7 today. And chapter 7 may be the single most important chapter in the whole book. When I say that, Paige and Marie are going, come on, because they assign me chapter 7 because it's just full of genealogies. Okay. But chapter 7 may be the single most important chapter in the whole book. It's sort of, Nehemiah sort of breaks down like the Ten Commandments do. The first four is about focusing towards God, what God is doing and what he's able to do. And then the last part of the Ten Commandments is, is, is us, us-centered, what's important to us, our families, our society, and our possessions. Now, just to give you, it's not, this is free right here, okay? Uh, in the Ten Commandments is your philosophy of life as a Christian. God first, family second, society's requirements third, possessions come last. They are just in, almost meaningless. Don't waste your time coveting what your neighbor has. You turn on the TV set, what does it say? What you covet and what you want is most important. Buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this. And then your work comes second. Of course, you've got to put food on the table, right? So society's needs come second. Family, we'll give them a two-week vacation in the summer. We'll, you know, we'll take off a little bit at Christmas, go skiing or whatever. And God will give him Christmas and Easter. How's that? You see what the devil has done? He is not imaginative. He's not creative. He just reverses whatever God stands for. So we come to chapter 7 today, and chapter 7 is the single most important chapter of all because it teaches us this one important principle. People matter to God, so they should matter to us. You got it now? If you want to go to sleep, you've heard it. Go to sleep right here. The rest of us, let's just bow our heads and pray as we get going into this thing this morning. Father, we just thank you that you have called us and that you are having us build walls right now, that you've given us godly leadership, that you have put passion in our hearts. And now as we see how that all flows around us, May we learn the principles that you would have us to understand so that Vineyard Rolla can stand up and celebrate one day with an accomplished task that has been done in your might and power rather than ours. So we give ourselves over to this study this morning, just inviting your spirit to just lay it on us as we enter into your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah 6, verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, okay, 52 days, the wall is done. That's what this is, what they've heard about. All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Don't you like that? Up until this moment, they were a bunch of obnoxious, and you can fill in the blank. 
They were just crazy in opposition to everything that Nehemiah and God was trying to do. When they heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. I love that. It was not, you see, churches sometimes we get wrapped up in how many people are going to your church? How big is your budget? How many ministries are you doing? How many missionaries have you sent out? And all the things that's, that, that you can measure and you can put down on an asset sheet and say, here's my assets, here's my liabilities, and it all zeroes out or whatever it does, okay? That's how we usually evaluate churches. When was the last time you evaluated a church on the fact that it set your neighbor's teeth on edge because they lost their self-confidence because God is so alive in your life? When was the last time you looked around and said, I, I want to join that church because there is something so spiritually, dynamically powerful going on in that community, I cannot help but go there. That is what God is trying to create here. That is what God is beginning to infill within us. I believe that with all my heart this morning. God is giving us a sense of spiritual urgency and dynamism that is going to be contagious and self-confidence and whatever. People are going to say, wow, what in the world is God up to and those stupid people over there at Vineyard Rolla? Isn't that an amazing verse? You see... A church should be measured on how evident is God's working within it. That's how a church needs to be measured. How busy is God doing God's stuff in that community? What is going on in the middle of their lives where spirit, power, and presence are manifest so that your neighbors can't even bump into you without God spilling all over you? You're an effervescing fountain of life. And wherever you go, this life just splashes around and everybody gets wet because you're giving life and you're a life giver. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but in the Christian community, there's a lot of discussion today about how effective church is. Should we really be doing church the way we're doing it? Now, I'm not going to sit here and argue one way or the other because the problem with the question is, is that we assume that church is a place that we go to or something that we do. Church is not something that we go to or something that we do. I will admit that most of us see at church as that, as something that we would do rather than something that we are. That's where we really get screwed up in this discussion. The church has become weak and flaccid. Let's face it. We've become acculturalized somehow. We are not that thorn in the flesh of, of, of the, quotes pagan world or the non-spiritual world or, or however you want to define that. Church has become a value-added thing to our life. Well, if I want to enrich my life, yeah, I want my kids to get a little dose of this. I want them to know the stories that I heard. I think it's good that a kid grows up, with, you know, and then when he's older, he'll figure out what he or she wants to do. Sound familiar? It's not a value-added deal here. 
church is seen as bricks and mortar, some place that we go to. And I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons I chose Vineyard Rolla is because we're not in a church building program. We put our money downstairs with the homeless. That to me is an amazing priority that really draws me to this community that we chose somewhere along the past that we're not going to go and build, you know, $2 million, $4 million, $6 million facilities. We're going to invest our money in people. I value that. It's an amazing thing. But so we still think a church is coming to this place. This is Vineyard Rolla's address, so this must be where the church is. And it's bricks and mortar that require your time and your money and a little bit of your sacrificial um, talents, whatever. And then we say, does that measure out? Do I have higher priorities for my time and my money? And do I just give God Christmas and Easter, and is that okay? Nothing can be farther from the truth of what I have just painted here. Nothing can be farther from the truth. The church, you and I are the church. You and I are the people who connect to the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, Paul tells us in Romans. We we are empowered by spirit to do amazing things. Jesus says, you think that you've seen some of the things that I've done that are pretty amazing? Guess what? In the future, you're going to do things even greater than what I've done. He's just a starting place. The church, you and I, coming together and being separate by ourselves, however church emerges for you, is empowered by the mind of Christ, by the inflowing of the Spirit to do impossible things in Christ's name. You know what some of those impossible things are? Loving one another. That's one of the toughest ones right there. When we gloss, oh yes, we're Christians, we love one another. No, we don't. You know darn well you don't love enough, right? There are people in your life that you are blocking out, that you have got a barrier against, a wall against, a judgment against, that you will not let into your life. So don't kid you. I know who you are because I guess I'm sort of that way too. Caring for the powerless, that's another impossible thing. Caring for the powerless. If you read the Old Testament, you can't help but read the Old Testament. You know the number one thing that's mentioned in the Old Testament? Besides following the law, because that was a very Judaistic thing, okay? The second thing that's mentioned in the Old Testament is caring for the orphans, the widows, and the aliens. That's why Jesus in the New Testament just took that tradition. He says when Christ comes back, he's not going to ask you what your doctrinal beliefs are. He's not going to ask you what your church membership is. He's going to ask you, did you visit the lonely? Did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you care for anybody in your life? Do you have just enough glimpse of eternity here to love the people that I have created and placed in your path? Accepting the unacceptable, and you, you have your list, I have my list. I have a, a list of unacceptable. Okay. One of the things I'd like to add to your unacceptable list that you will now love is white heterosexual males. We seem to be on the outs with everybody anymore. Just going to put a plug in for people like me. Anyway. People that we have, that we find unacceptable, we all have our list. 
And we think it's a godly list because sometimes we think that's what Scripture tells us to do. No. Scripture tells us to love everyone without barriers and without walls. Washing the feet of fellow travelers, you know the imagery of that. That was the, the image of the Last Supper. You know what the disciples were doing all that afternoon? As they were walking towards Jerusalem for Jesus' last Friday night with them, you know what they were doing? They walked faster. Jesus followed behind them, if you read the accounts. They didn't want to be hanging around Jesus on that afternoon. They were all up ahead arguing who was going to have the highest throne closest to Jesus. They were all arguing about thrones. So when they got to the upper room, nobody took up the towel because the towel was the servant job. They were all kings. So what did Jesus do? Jesus went over to the corner and got the basin of water and the towel. And he went by each disciple's feet and he washed their feet. And what was he saying? He says, my kingdom is not about thrones. My kingdom is about towels. You really don't have a part of my kingdom if you don't have a towel. Draped around your kneecap, washing fellow travelers' feet, feet who are bruised and dusty and dirty and smelly and sweaty from the journey. Now, these are some pretty amazingly difficult, impossible, great, magnificent things that connecting to Christ allows us to be and to do, right? That is not what this bricks-and-mortar church is going to do, but it's what the church inside the bricks-and-mortar is going to do. The church is an amazing amalgamation of cosmic connection. You like that? I, I wrote this, so I, I think you'd like this. The church is an amazing amalgamation of cosmic connection between the heart of God and your heart. My heart doing the workings of heaven. Now, just to show you that I'll copy somebody else, here's another quote I want you to listen to. Nothing on earth has greater potential to change the lives to change lives and carry out his kingdom work in your community. Nothing than your local church. There's nothing like the local church when it's working right. It's, beautiful. it's beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. No other organization on earth is like the church. That's you and me gathered together in the same place and also separate. Nothing even comes close. Have you ever imagined what this world would be like with about a group of people who were trying to learn to love one another and love each other and not have barriers and judgments and, and, and exclusivity and all those things? Can you imagine what this world would be like without a group of people who come together every week to remind ourselves that's what it's all about? The impact that the church, and I, and I heard somebody say this years ago, and I believe it with all my heart, in spite of the sweaty, smelly ugliness of the Christian church in its history over 2,000 years, the crusades, the everything that we did, the burning at the stake and the drownings and the tortures and every ugly thing that the organized church did for the last 2,000 years, there's never been a, any other agency, organization that has done as much good schools, hospitals, 
going over and bringing life and hope to people who have no life and hope. You think about the impact, the greater things than these. I think that's somewhat what Jesus was saying there. I can heal a few people in, in Israel, but you get to heal people all over the world in the name of Christ. You get to do this in the name of Christ. In spite of our foibles, we're still an awesome agency of life and love in this, in this world. Vineyard Rolla is God's creation. God is creating you. God is creating me. He's doing something indescribably awesome. He is doing it now. He did it yesterday, and he'll do it tomorrow. You are church. You are Jesus' very hands and his feet to do the very same things that he did with the same power that he had. When we understand this and operate in this attitude, then this verse comes back, and, and we're going to conclude this segment with that. Our enemies will become afraid and lose their self-confidence. How about that, that atheist next door that keeps spouting anti-Christian stuff when you go, you know, whatever? you ever thought about the power of your presence showing up and they become speechless and they lose their self-confidence in your, in your space? That's the power that you have. That's the influence that you can generate. Because they realize that the church has been created by the help of our God. Okay, now we get into chapter 7 here. After this incredible feat of, of building the wall in 52 days, what's the first thing they did? The very first thing they did after the, all of that was done was that they wrote out the list of everybody involved in the project. Now, that's the opposite way that most churches operate, by the way. Most of the churches operate by saying, oh, what are our resources? Okay, well, I guess we'll only be able to do that this year based upon the money, based upon how many eager beavers we have, how many people are willing to serve. We will then see our resources, and then we'll decide what God wants us to do. Boy, it's radically different when God's really in charge, isn't it? God says, this is what I want you to do. Okay, I'll provide for it. Just do it. None of those people assumed that anything that they were going to have to go through when Nehemiah showed up, they were just excited about the dream, right? But what's the first thing they did? If we really want to cement the new walls for the next 400 years, that, uh, like their walls were lasting for 400 years, if we want to build what God wants to build inside Vineyard Rolla, then we need to pay attention to this step very carefully. It's found in Nehemiah 7, verse 5. So my God put it in my heart. This is God-inspired stuff. To assemble the nobles, the offices, offices, the officers, the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. What does this teach us? God first, people second. Not people first and God second. God first, he gets his direction, he gets his vision, he gets his task accomplished. Then people, the people that are 
recreated and regenerated in the process of being swept up into the passion of what Christ wants them to be and do in, in all of that. God first, people second. He's the one who gives the vision. He's the one who gives the direction. He's the one who calls us to the, to the target on the wall. Then you and I are the people who come alongside and we say, Speak, Lord, for my servant hears me. You remember that story in Samuel when he's just a young man. People matter to God. You know how much they matter to God? Look at verse uh, Nehemiah uh, 7, verse 66. I don't know if that's right or not. I don't know if it goes 66. I may have mistyped that one. That may have been when one of the boys interrupted me, like Dylan back there. Okay, here we go. The whole company numbered 42,360. And besides their 7,337 men servants and maidservants, they also had 245 men and women singers. Yes, worship team, you are listed. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, 6,720 donkeys. Now, most genealogies in the Old Testament only include men. They're just, you know, the father had the son, the son had the next son, and on down and on down. This is one of only two genealogies that actually includes somebody other than fathers and sons. So we need to take a look at it. The other one, by the way, is in Matthew 1. Matthew 1 is a fascinating genealogy because it has four women in there, and every one of them is a woman of ill repute. You know, Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and goes down, and then suddenly Rahab shows up. Well, who was Rahab? She's a prostitute in Jericho. Well, if you're a spy, where are you going to go, and you think you're going to be fairly safe? You're going to go to the prostitute, right? She's not going to turn you in. I mean, think about it. Okay, then there's Ruth, who slept with Boaz before they were married. The Bible says she warmed his feet. I love that. She probably warmed a few other things, too, but she warmed his feet. I love how that is expressed. Anyway, then there's Tamar who seduced her father-in-law, and, and the list goes on. You, you, you look at Matthew 1 and say, what in the world, God, are you up to in this genealogy? Well, right at the end of the genealogy, he says, you should call his name Jesus because of Jesus' genealogy. You should call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from your sins. Jews, you have a little sordid history that you've got to cover your bases on. Jesus came to save you from your history, right? Now, that's Matthew 1, and that's free. I didn't, that's not even part of this study this morning. Here we go to this genealogy, and it lists all the way down to the animals. I like that. The entire community was numbered, down to slaves, whoever would put slaves in there. No one was left out. No one didn't matter. It didn't, there was no verse that says there was 50,000 people there, and a whole bunch of them weren't weren't worth even mentioning. Everyone was numbered. Everyone was known. Everyone was identified. Everyone was valued because they couldn't have done the job without any of these. These are the people who got the job done. Now, I want to have a little parentheses here and have a little fun with this verse, and probably I shouldn't, but I'm going to. If you look at this list, there's about 6,965 asses mentioned between the mules and the donkeys. May I propose a spiritual principle to you? Where two or three are gathered, there's always going to be an ass or two who's going to show up. 
Now, you didn't think that was funny, so I'm just, anyway. (laughs) Where two or three are gathered, if my math adds up, that's about 14%. Pretty much any church you go to, you're going to look around and say, 14%, and I won't say it because, you know, you're not supposed to say this in church. No church of God comes with an absence of an ass or two. I just, you know, we just got to bring this up, okay? And why? Because God brings them into our midst so that we will learn to love. That's all they are. They're invitations for us to love. You just want to wring their necks. You want to pound them over the head with a hammer, whatever you want to do. But Jesus brings them into our midst so that we will learn to love. Let's come on. Here's a practice thing. Let's not exclude those who irritate us. Let's embrace those who irritate us. And just think about the possibility that maybe you irritate a few other people and they need to be hugging you. Okay, parentheses over. Now let's get back to preaching here. So back to the importance of people matter to God, so they should matter to us. In Romans, Paul is talking to us about what we do with these kind of people, okay? And now in Romans, it was... Uh, there was two groups of people. One were just totally oblivious to God, and the other ones thought they were already got the corner on the market with God. So he's going through and saying, everybody needs to be saved, whether, you're, whether you don't believe in God or whether you think you're getting to heaven by your good works and all that. Everybody needs to be saved. And then he goes on and explains how that. And then he says, by the way, when, all, when you understand that, nothing separates you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Even your death doesn't separate you from him your illness, your, your economic status, nothing separates you from the love of God. Anchors that, Romans 8, 1, and then he goes on to say, now this is how it plays out. This is how you treat those kind of people. And in Romans 14, he's talking about a group of people who would rather do the right thing than the loving thing. Can I say that again? These are people who are trained to do the right thing, follow the law, rather than do the loving thing first. That's tricky, isn't it? Because most of us have equated church with telling us what's right. But church isn't designed to tell us what's right. Church is to tell us who the right God is so that he can tell you how to act, how to move in and out of situations, so that his spirit speaks to your spirit. Romans, what, 8, 16, 8, 14? in there so that you're a, you're just, you have nothing blocking spirit telling you, now with this person over here, I want you to say these words. And oh, this person over here, you may just want to smile at them. Maybe they're not just ready for you right now or what, you know, whatever. Spirit is directing your life. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. But these people would rather be right than loving. And they equated by if you, if you ate food offered to idols or if you didn't worship on the right day, then they just wrote you out. We still make our list. It's just usually not those two items anymore, right? But we know who to write out. We know who to write off. Oh, God, God's not working in their life because they come under this category. So what does Paul say to them? He says three things. He says, first of all, don't judge anyone else's spiritual journey. 
You have no idea what God is doing in their lives and how far along on the journey they are, how close they are to surrender and submission, how, how resistant they are, how troubled they are, how much, you know, spirit is working inside of them. You have no idea, so don't try to figure it out. Secondly, he says, Christ died to bring freedom to everybody. So these people don't have a lot of freedom, but you have freedom. So you act freely. You act with the freedom of God so that you can freely love, is really what he's trying to say. And lastly, he says, don't put stumbling blocks. You even, re- you even reel in your own personal freedom so that you don't become a stumbling block to somebody else. That is the tricky one. We're Americans. We're free. We can carry guns anywhere we want to. And God gave me this freedom, but he didn't give you the freedom to be a stumbling block to someone who hasn't come on the journey as far as you have. Does that make sense? So why? Here's the crux of the gospel right here. If your brother or sister, this is Romans 14, verse 15, if your brother or sister, and that's a lot better than what I call them, is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Wow. You mean somebody else dictates what I can do? If they're a weaker brother and sister, if they haven't yet figured things out, if they haven't yet submitted to spirit here, do not by your eating destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. What's he saying first? We are to act in love. It's the whole motivation. Love has to be the central motivation of our relationship with each other. This is so tricky in our Western world because we're used to having dual everything. You know, you come to the store, I'll give you this freebie, but I expect you to buy five other things, okay? Or churches, we want to save the loss, but we really like the numbers. Or whatever, whatever the thing has to be that's played out in the politics right now, does anybody ever stop and say, what about the poor people on the border? But the, but the conservatives have the wall being built and the, and, the, and the liberals say, they're just pawns, they're future voters for me. I say to both of you, just go jump in the lake and be quiet, will you? Let's care for the people on the border. Who are they? What are their dreams? How do we deal with this? How do we help them be successful in their own country so that they don't have to necessarily take that hazardous 2,000-mile trip through Mexico with all the bandits and all the stuff that they got to go through, end up on our border, and then be rejected. Can you imagine what that would feel like? And I'm not getting into the solution or the politics here. I'm just saying, what is the heart of God telling us about these people? Instead of seeing it as a, as a political talking point, Act in love is not using things for your own personal gain. It is about loving the individual where they are, who they are, why they are, how they are, when they are. It's not seeing them as an object, a commodity, or a target. Lastly, everyone is someone for whom Christ died. 
If we understood this one, I don't think there would be a porn epidemic in this country. You really want to know the truth? I don't know why I leap there. That's quite a leap, isn't it? But if everyone was someone for whom Christ died, if the value of Christ's life is planted in that person, how can we see them as objects? Discount their individuality, their humanity, their eternity. Discount it all. Throw it out and use it for our own personal gain. Everyone is someone for whom Christ died. The value of Christ's life is placed on everyone, the nameless, homeless people downstairs that we haven't yet taken time to get to know. The hungry kids going to elementary school and school starts and the hungry kids in the summer and I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Everyone is someone for whom Christ died. Do you remember the uh, Passion of the Christ? I could only see it once. It was so graphically horrifying. But in my imagination, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the cost that he went through, the, the depth of his passion for you and for me, Started that when he was arrested, you know, and, and basically if you, if you look at the story, he had nothing to eat or drink from the time he was arrested until the time he died, except for that, that little offering on the cross there. He went in, they whipped him first, and the Romans were experts at, at crucifixions, and they knew just how to lacerate the back of Jesus so that it would drain him of his body fluids. It would be extremely painful but it would drain him of all of his body fluids. By the time he got to the cross, his tongue was already protruding out of him. He couldn't close his mouth because his tongue was already swollen. He was hit. He was beaten. He had open wounds. He had dried wounds. He, 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 he had personal defecation over himself. Nobody cared for him. Nobody took care of him. His eyes were closed with all the bloodshot agony that he went through, the crown of thorns placed on his head. They take him out, and they stretch him out on a, on a cross. And, and in contrast to all of the beautiful pastel pictures that we have of the crucifixion, these were not brand new boards. They were used with the last crucifixion. And so all they did was measure Jesus and put him on one that had dried blood and dried excrement and dried vomit on it from the last guy. And and it was a horrifying, ugly place to be. Stretched him out, pounded nails into his hands and his feet, jerked him into the ground, jabbed him down into the ground, and opened up all those wounds again, and, and the pain had to be excruciating. And the worst of it all was not even the pain. The worst of it all was that finally he recognized, I don't sense my God anymore. Where is God? God, why have you forsaken me? God-forsakenness is the worst thing that Jesus ever went through. Why? Because he had never been for eternity without a knowledge and an awareness of Jesus. From eternity to eternity, he was with the Father, and now suddenly he cannot sense his Father's presence anywhere. He is truly forsaken. You know why? Because your sins and mine blotted out that connection between him and his father. When Jesus died, he died thinking he would never live again. He thought he would be forever outside of the presence of his father. It's called a second death. He died fully aware that he would never sense his father's presence again. He did it because he loved you that much. 
He did it because he loved me that much, and he did it for everyone in this world that he loves. He, everyone is someone who Jesus died for that day, thinking he would never, ever see his father again. How in the world can we not have people matter to us? How in the world can we call ourselves Christ followers and not love the very people that Christ died for? That's why this chapter is so important. If they could number it all the way down to the slaves and the donkeys, don't you think that God has a number on everyone? He knows how many hairs on your head and how many non-hairs I have on my head. He knows it. Why? He has a great genealogy. And he loves people. Every person born. They are someone for whom he died. He paid that price as he's building the walls of this church, riveted into the cornerstone of this church, is that all people matter to God, so they matter to us. Let's pray.